Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Gabriela Santos. She's Global Chief Strategist at J.P. Morgan Funds. Uh, and let me start just by asking you about the Federal Reserve meeting we had this week and the hierarchy of sort of what's important to investors right now. Where do you position the Fed compared to, say, political events and, and what we saw in Europe and, indeed, what we're looking forward to in, in France? So I think the Fed is still relevant. It's perhaps less of a focus than it has been over the past few years, which ultimately is a healthy thing. Yeah. We should be focusing a little bit back on fundamentals, on how the economy and, and earnings and are actually doing. Um, But I do think we could have gleaned some interesting uh, perspectives from the Fed meeting. In particular for me was their approach towards inflation. Uh, And I didn't see a particular concern from their side uh, towards inflation, Uh, even as you get some of these uh, indices, whether it's CPI or even PC, getting closer to their target, they signaled a bit of a willingness to look through that. Uh, So to me, that signals a faster pace of rate hikes Mm -hmm. than over the past few years. Um, But it removes some of that tail risk of the Fed being overly aggressive, at least for now. How much of a disconnect was there or is there between what the Fed is projecting and what investors thought would happen, what would come out of the meeting? I think it was decently in line. Uh, So very well telegraphed rate hike. Uh, The statement did reflect a slightly better view towards the economy and inflation. Uh, And then Janet Yellen during the press conference seemed very hesitant to to precipitate any sort of fiscal policy change as she has in the past, right, as she did last year. Um, What perhaps was a little bit of a surprise was uh, the willingness to look through some of that inflation. And that's why I think the market reacted the way it did with bond yields falling, with the dollar falling, was removing that tail risk of a very aggressive Fed. We were talking to Sebastian Malaby uh, yesterday, Mm -hmm. uh, and he talked how talked about how problematic it can be uh, if, if the Fed is too predictable. Uh, he had a column in the Post, I think about a week ago, suggesting the Fed could really uh, do a good service by raising rates by 50 basis points instead of 25. Of course, that didn't happen. But is, is there a problem with predictability, do you think, as, as an investor, as a strategist, do you see that being a problem? I think it's a problem to the extent uh, that if we take last year as an example, right? In our view, given where the economy was, given where inflation already was trending, Last year was already a year to have hiked more than just once, right, at the end of the year. Uh, However, the Fed's preoccupation around preparing the market and being overly concerned and predictable uh, removed some of that optionality for them. Uh, and I think that is a concern for us in some, uh, some, to some extent, right, that the Fed needs to act regardless of whether the market is ready or not. Um, and that's ultimately better for, for the economy. Uh, Gabrielle, I believe at Pennsylvania, buried in the textbooks, was the idea you don't do share buybacks at market tops. Are we <laughs> going to see fewer share buybacks? I believe the theory is if the stock market goes up, 
you don't buy back your shares, but it's always broken, isn't it? It has. And and I think that's such a crucial question because the market, if we look at the equity market, has been getting a little bit excited about tax reform, repatriation, um, and thinking about how companies can choose to act on that extra cash. And there is some excitement that they'll shift away from buybacks, from dividends, uh, from the usual use of cash over the past few years right. towards actually using it for CapEx. Oh. Which would be revolutionary if we think about the last 10 years, right? Even before the crisis. Well, are you predicting that? Um, So I think there's a question mark here. Um, This was a behavior of companies before the financial Mm. crisis, right? And so do we create uh, the environment where companies are willing to spend on CapEx? And that's not just about tax reform and cash. It's also about removing several other types of uncertainty. Such as? Well, such as there's uh, the potential perhaps for less regulation Mm -hmm. or perhaps we could say more targeted or smarter types of regulation, which could remove some of that uncertainty. That's often been cited as one of the the top concerns for companies of all different types and sizes in the U.S. However, you're adding at the same time another layer of uncertainty here. Uh, with regards to trade, with regards to immigration, with regards to geopolitics. So we have to be careful in figuring out the balance there. Um, And something that's interesting, if you look at sentiment surveys, companies have been feeling more optimistic, but they're still feeling uncertain. So whether they actually act on that optimism and that capex is a whole different matter. How about volatility? You look at the VIX hovering around 11 and 12. What does that that, uh, tell you about what's to come? That tells us that it's it's pretty easy to say that volatility will go up from yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <fall, laughs> right. When we say that, people are just like, well, yes. Uh, but I do think it holds true mm. uh, because if you think historically all the way back to 1980, usually you see a 10% correction once a year, 5% once a quarter. Uh, and it's difficult to think that this year will be different with regards to that. It doesn't mean the market has to end down. It can end up for the year. It often right. does, 80% of the time. But there is that digestion that needs to take place. We look at retail, and the same-store sales in retail have been challenging. Tiffany's just out with a, a light global same-store sales, I believe, it was negative 5%. The flagship store, negative 11%. But it does get back to revenue responsiveness. With all that's going on in politics, fiscal stimulus and that, at the top line, do you people believe that you'll <laughs> add more to revenue? That there'll, that there'll be a better oomph to corporate revenue this year? We do. We do. Um, and that's really crucial from this part onwards in the cycle, where we've done a lot Agreed. of that margin Agreed. expansion, a lot of yeah. that cost-cutting, and now it's all about revenue growth. Um, and if we think about companies, what's helpful for them uh, is if they feel like they have enough uh, pricing power, right, where they feel like they can raise prices and consumers will still buy their goods. Uh, and that's really where we are in this cycle, is testing that, uh, and for companies uh, really to, to feel like they can increase their prices and hence increase their revenue yeah. growth. Um, and I and I we do feel optimistic that we will see that. I mean, it's an amazing day, but I'm looking at a boring toothpaste nut company that'll be <laughs> remain nameless. Their revenue growth is 2.9 percent. Wow. <laughs> so if you put a stick on that, it's a 50 percent lift in revenue. Huh. That's the kind of leverage you get off of that. Where are you looking overseas right now? I see that we're having the, the best week for emerging markets. I think in eight or, or nine months. Um, what's attractive to you at this point, and sort of how do you, as you're balancing out a portfolio, look to emerging markets at this point? So if we think about portfolios at this point in time, we would say we're looking around the world, we're seeing an acceleration in growth. Mm. That's very encouraging. It's translating to a better earnings outlook. So overall, we would be looking at equity markets versus government bonds. 
Then when you think about where does the U.S. fit in that, um, and we're talking about at this point in the cycle, it's normal to have less uh, earnings growth. And so we have lowered our expectations for U.S. returns to close to 5% over the next few years. That's not bad. It's just less than what you were getting over the past (laughs) few years. So international is crucial from here on out. And we're really in the sweet spot where the U.S. is in a more mature phase, but not approaching recession. And that's where it's really valuable to have a good allocation to international. So we're looking to emerging markets and we're looking at the eurozone. We underplay this, David. We're so eurocentric. I mean, if you look at the Dow, U.S.-based, up 19.8% last 12 months. If you're in London and you invest in the Dow with sterling weakness, you're up 40%, It's remarkable. What, help me here with small cap, large cap. I mean, there's just this whole idea of J.P. Morgan. I mean, your idea of a small company is Apple. Um, <laughs> help, help me here with small cap, mid cap, large cap. So uh, the argument is, is was a bit stronger uh, last year, right, before small caps had such a strong rally. So the argument was if you're starting to see all of these uh, policy proposals that could be good for smaller companies, things like less regulation, like changing the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, focusing on improving the domestic economy, that argues perhaps for prioritization of small and mid caps. However, you've already seen a big move there and valuations are less attractive and decently equal between the two. So there's less of an argument to pick one versus the other now. Gabrielle Santos, thank you so much with JP Morgan. Elmendorf joins us, folks. If you are into fiscal policy, he needs no introduction. The former Congressional Budget Office Director and now his leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, What I find so sad here, uh, Dr. Elmendorf, is if I go to the CBO and a 295-page document of a year ago, Options for Reducing the Deficit 2017 to 2026, the White House had all sorts of expert opinion on how to get the job done. And yes. they clearly didn't listen. We've seen that within the uproar. Is the damage from this irreparable? It can, can the White House and the budget process recover from the idea of having Nick Burns react to a 28% reduction in State Department? This damage can be repaired. It depends on what the Congress does in actually passing appropriations. The president proposes these cuts, but the Congress will ultimately put the numbers down on paper. Do they work with his, and this is really important, folks, this is a huge privilege to have Dr. Elmendorf with us this morning. Do they work with any kind of document Kevin Hassett or Mr. Volvany and others give them, or do they start from scratch this morning? Well, the Congress will look at the numbers that the president's team sends over, but they'll ultimately do what they think makes sense. A number of the leading Republicans in Congress have already expressed strong disagreements with aspects, at least, of the proposals. We we had some sense here that regular order would be restored in Washington, D.C. Is is it going to be, can you foresee gridlock that would prevent that from happening? What have the consequences been of having uh, continuing resolution after continuing resolution after continuing resolution? I think the big obstacle to regular order on the budget is that some members of Congress are setting goals that sound good in the abstract Mm -hmm. to trim back government spending. 
but that aren't realizable in the specifics. People are unhappy about high government spending in many ways, but they like their Social Security benefits. They like their Medicare benefits. They want us to have strong diplomatic presence around the world. They want biomedical research. So in the specifics, people like a lot of things that are going on. And if the Congress sets a goal, in this case, the president has set a goal that can't be reached through the actual appropriations process, that's going to make it much harder to proceed in a regular way. Just get an historical sense here. We had Congressman French Hill a moment ago talking about the president's budget, saying that uh, at the beginning of an administration, uh, a president put, puts forth the budget for, uh, in part, symbolic value to show what he or she, perhaps she in the future is, is interested in. Is that what we're seeing here? How do you regard a first budget from a, a president? How much of it is, is realistic versus how much is it uh, a symbolically important? A lot of it is symbol. In this case, I think particularly Director Mulvaney is trying to convey his vision of what the government should be. On the other hand, if that symbol that you're setting out is too far away from reality, it's actually diminishing your ability to influence the outcome. Figure 3-1, page 66 of this document, it's all there for the White House, the glide path of discretionary spending. In the president's defense, a lot of people are upset. We're going to come back and talk about this. But the president has a point that we're now at a tipping point, aren't we, in terms of total debt to GDP? We have a lot of debt from the federal government relative to the size of the economy. I don't use the word tipping point. We don't know what level of debt could be particularly dangerous. And at the moment, as you know, Treasury interest rates are quite low. That gives us more running okay. room. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do something, but no. it's not as urgent as otherwise. We're going to come back and talk about this. And I think this, this the word urgent really comes up here. The debate over do something now versus do it in a measured manner. What a privilege. Douglas Elmendorf with us from the Kennedy School at Harvard, a former Congressional Budget Office director. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Dug out of a snowbank in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Douglas Elmendorf, joining us in our studios uh, here in uh, New York. We were talking about where we were. We were romancing about LBJ and back when we spent money on defense and discretionary as a percent of our GDP. And then there was this thing called the Clinton surplus. What's the real story about the Clinton surplus? How did it happen and can we get back to the nirvana of what six weeks it was in 2000? <laughs> there were two main factors. One was that with the end of the Cold War, defense spending declined significantly as a percentage of GDP. The other factor was that the economy was booming and the financial sector was booming. So we had a big surge of income tax revenues. And those two factors are hard to reproduce. Defense spending can't fall a lot further as a share of GDP. There's discussion about how big it should be, but it's not going to fall in half again as a percentage of GDP as it did. And a boom in the economy will obviously help the budget, but it's hard to just order that up. I ask you about sort of what drives budgeting in, in Washington. You look at the Pentagon, and for many weeks now, it has been James Mattis and James Mattis alone running that department. I think yesterday we got a few notices of, of nominations to undersecretary positions and assistant secretary positions. But you look at this big increase in defense spending, $54 billion at the White House once, uh, and you just have to think that, that cannot, that's probably not being driven by the Pentagon at this point, just by virtue of the fact that there aren't a whole lot of people there to strategize for it. Speaking more broadly... 
could agencies be doing more? Should agencies be doing more to sort of tell the White House, tell the Congress what they need, and how respectful is Congress of them? I think it's a terrible mistake by this administration to not have filled more of those positions more quickly, both because they want to have more influence over those departments and because they need a source of information from the departments. And those secretaries, uh, with their deputy secretaries and assistant secretaries and so on, are the conduits for both control of the government and information from the government to the White House. Um, So they need to fill those positions. I think the $54 billion is a little overstated in the sense that it's $54 billion relative to what the current law will have for the coming year. It's actually a smaller increase relative to last year's spending level. And that just reflects the fact that these caps on appropriations, both defense and non-defense, for next year are below levels of spending that we're we're doing right now. And that goes back to the earlier point about these targets for spending that aren't realizable in terms of the specific appropriations. The debt ceiling is back. We still have the sequester. The president went to Capitol Hill, spoke before a joint session of Congress, and said he'd like to get get rid of it. How do we judge the success of it? Has has the the sequester done much here, and how easily can a president wave a wand and get rid of this, uh, this mechanism? Well, I think the debt ceiling is a mistake to have. It mostly forces these showdowns that have not done much to really put the budget on a better path. The sequester as you recall, was the accidental outcome of a process that was designed to generate changes in benefit programs and taxes, which everybody agrees is really the route to putting the budget on a better path in the future. We backed into the limits on these annual appropriations because a deal couldn't be struck. I think everybody would like to go back to working in that kind of deal, but whether that deal has great prospects for being adopted given the polarization in our leaders and in our country, is not very clear. Doug Elmendorf with us. He's the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. I was talking to another uh, director earlier this week, Robert Reichauer, and he said you could, you could see the scars that he had from being in that job, <laughs> uh, from dealing with all of the politics of that, that position, at least uh, being subjected uh, to them. You look at, at what we've heard over these past few weeks about that institution. What do you make of it? Uh, has it been this politicized before? Not saying the institutions politicized. Has it been facing so much political pressure, so much political rhetoric? Is this something new? There have always been criticisms of CBO, and that's fair if they're based on evidence and logic. Uh, what worries me is the criticism is based on politics, people trying to pressure CBO, and a succession of CBO directors and a tremendous number of talented CBO analysts have resolutely resisted pressure for more than 40 years, and they'll keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Bob has his scars. I have some. (laughs) Keith Hall is now uh, earning his his scars. Holtz-Eakin's never recovered. (laughs) Doug Holtz-Eakin as well. Alice Rivlin did it twice, I think. (laughs) Alice did it longer than anybody for more than eight years. But the institution is incredibly important, and almost all the members of Congress understand that, even when they object to particular estimates. I found as director lots of reinforcement for the importance of the agency and the work that it does, Mm. and I think that will continue. I've been raving about CBO. It's nothing new. I've been doing it for years. But again, back to the the weekend reading of options for reducing the deficit. (laughs) If you were to say to the president or to his White House team, his political team, okay, you've really screwed this up. Even the Republicans are livid. Here's what you need to do, given the belief everyone has that we have too much debt. What's the Elmendorf prescription to get, as Orzag would say, to get those glide paths back in the right direction? Now is the time to be developing a set of policies that would scale back uh, on some of our entitlement programs over time and would raise some revenues. 
to pay for uh, the programs that we have. Remember that we have a very, an aging population. A lot more people are going to be eligible for Social Security right. and Medicare in the coming years. How do you respond to the idea that we need to broaden the tax break base and even very poor people should play, pay an itty-bitty little bit of tax? Or is that just conservative rhetoric that, that get, doesn't move the needle? Remember that poor working people are paying payroll tax. Uh, many Americans pay much more in payroll tax than yes. they pay in income tax. So if you look at all of the federal taxes together, not right. just the income tax, most people are paying tax. Should we raise as a constructive exercise the amount of salary that's used to calculate the Social Security tax? It's 120, I'm guessing, right now. It, should it go up to 140 or 150, or would that create an uproar and make the president age? Yes and yes. I think we should, <laughs> and it would create an uproar. I mean, it would create an uproar. But it would, but we should remember that the share of total earnings that are being captured now by the Social Security payroll tax is smaller than the share we had for many, many decades. That share has slipped over time. So pushing up the cap would really just go back yeah. to what we were doing a few decades I ago. I wrote a story on this, uh, David Gura, pushing 11 years ago for Bloomberg News, and the hate mail still comes in. <laughs> Look at your perspective on just the, the magnitude of what Congress is saying it's going to consider uh, this year. We see them working on the Affordable Care Act now, trying to make changes to that with this new piece of legislation. At least some of the, the House Republicans are. Uh, there's an eagerness among them to tackle tax reform and uh, financial reform uh, as well. Uh, give us a sense of how, how big an undertaking that is and the likelihood you think that we're going to get tax reform this time around. To do big reform to the health care system or the tax system is really a year-long project for the Congress because a lot of other things have to happen along the way, like the annual appropriations and other sorts of legislation. So to push through some comprehensive reform of a big part of federal policy is very hard and really takes much of a year. I think it was a tactical mistake for the Republican leadership to not turn to tax reform to start with. That was, I think tax reform is more important for our economy and I think would be more favorable for them in political terms. They felt a need to tackle health reform because of what they've been saying about the Affordable Care Act for a long time. But analysts all knew there was no way to satisfy the set of objectives Republicans had laid out for health care reform, and we're seeing that now in the debacle that's unfolding. How do you respond to Leviathan? <laughs> the articles restraining the Leviathan property tax limitation in Massachusetts. It's a good supplement for Ambien, Elmendorf, Seckhauser, <laughs> and a few other uh, lowlifes. It is a Leviathan. A lot of people feel that way. A lot of the Trump supporters feel that way. It's out of control. It's too big. How do we tame the beast of the budget? The problem is that the beast is growing in budgetary terms, mostly because the population is aging and health care costs are rising. And not just rising in the government, but rising across the economy. Defense spending is a smaller percentage of GDP than it's been for most of my lifetime. The non-defense discretionary spending, the appropriations every year, they're about the same share of GDP today they were 50 years ago. Uh, what's really grown is Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. And it's grown because uh, we have more older Americans and health care is more expensive. So to really pull back on the Leviathan in budgetary terms requires hard choices about those programs. What I think is a different matter is the Leviathan in a regulatory sense. The EPA is matters for the economy not so much through its, the appropriations it gets. Those matter for states and local governments. 
It matters for the economy through its regulation. People should distinguish a bit between mm -hmm. the budgetary leviathan and the regulatory well, leviathan. Uh, Professor Elmendorf, thank you so much. He's with the Kennedy School of Harvard, dean of the Kennedy School at Harvard, and of course, formerly with the CBO. This entire conversation will be out at our iTunes podcast. We thank Bank of America for their support of all of our surveillance digital product worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Now we go to Nicholas Burns, Ambassador Nicholas Burns, Professor of the Practice at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Joining us, great to speak with you. Good morning. Uh, as always, let's start with the trip that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is taking through East Asia uh, at this point. He made it known on the first stop on that trip. He wants this administration to pursue a different policy toward uh, North Korea. Give us a sense of how much that policy has changed from administration to administration. I do think there's a consensus that we have to change policy towards North Korea. Both President Clinton and President George W. Bush tried diplomacy, and the North Koreans didn't honor the agreements we made. And now the problem is more serious, because they have nuclear weapons, and they have a ballistic missile, which, if they put a nuclear warhead on top of it, if they can master that technology, could possibly reach the west coast of the United States in the next five to ten years. And that's an unacceptable threat to the U.S. So I think that Secretary Tillerson's right to suggest that we need to change course. Obviously, it's not going to be in the direction of the use of military force because that could be potentially catastrophic. I think what they're going to do uh, is try to convince China that China has to finally use its leverage over North Korea to try to resolve or at least contain this problem and make this a big issue in the U.S.-China relationship. Patience is a part of diplomacy, probably a frustrating part of diplomacy to someone like you who's been engaged with it. We heard from Secretary Tillerson uh, yesterday saying here that the era of strategic patience has to end when it comes to, to North Korea. What would you tell him about the importance of uh, taking one's time, listening to all sides, and trying to figure this out? Well, I think he knows that. I don't think he was suggesting that we should be impetuous or um, act hastily. Uh, I think what he's saying is that the policy of trying to contain the threat by either talking to the North Koreans in negotiations, which they entirely disregard, or having them meet commitments to us, which they then forego, you've got to, you've got to think of a different policy. And Beijing is going to be at the heart of this. Xi Jinping will be at Mar-a-Lago in Florida to visit tre President Trump in about a month's time. And I, I expect that North Korea will be very high on the list, but certainly we've got to be patient in putting together a stronger and more effective policy. What are you listening to uh, from the secretary on this trip? Of course, we had Secretary of Defense James Mattis a couple of weeks before uh, making pretty much the same itinerary. Uh, what are you going to What are you going to be uh, straining to hear from the secretary while he's overseas? A reaffirmation of America's commitment to South Korea and to Japan. These are our two critical allies. One of the problems with the beginning of President Trump's tenure in office is President Trump himself questioning the utility and relevance of American alliances, whether it's the Far East with Japan and South Korea or whether it's NATO. And, and you see that Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson have to follow behind right. and, 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 and reaffirm what every American president is Truman that Truman has, since Truman has known that these alliances are critical to us. What is the relationship of Senate and House diplomacy leadership in instructing, teaching, helping a president get to a better outcome? Do they sit down over a scotch of their choice and say, well, Mr. President, I mean, how does that work? 
Well, this is an unusual time where I think the leadership in Washington is coming from the Senate, and particularly Senate Republicans, people like um, certainly John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Rob Portman and Susan Collins and Marco Rubio. And they've all been suggesting to the president privately and publicly, you can't cut the State Department budget by a third. That will decimate our diplomacy. You have to honor our allies. Angela Merkel's going to be at the White House today. You can't see, cannot see Germany as solely an economic competitor when it's our strongest ally in Europe. And to try to suggest to the president there's a history here. You're inheriting the history, the wisdom of previous presidents, policies that have worked, stick with them. Don't strike out on this far-right adventure of economic nationalism and withdrawal of American influence in the world, which is the great fear that Bannon Bannon and others will get to the president and convince him to renege on everything that's gone well in American foreign policy in the past. On his last trip to Europe, uh, Secretary Tillerson traveled with, I think, six acting secretaries and an acting a spokesman on this trip, I think the picture is kind of the same. We don't have a full complement of, of deputies uh, in the State Department by uh, by any means. Yeah. Uh, I wonder sort of how that's handicapping him. I was speaking with Max Baucus yesterday, the former senator from Montana, of course, also ambassador uh, to China, and he said that it was a real shame that on his stop in Tokyo, uh, Secretary Tillerson did not stop at the embassy there. Uh, he kind of characterized that as an amateur mistake, but one that could have a really deleterious effect on morale uh, in that embassy. Well, a small well, mistake, but, yeah. but could it have a, a bigger sense of import? You should all, Secretary of State should always visit the uh, American embassy. I think Secretary Tillerson has yes. all the skills to be a successful secretary, and I certainly wish him well. I do think this has been, from the Trump White House, the slowest transition in history. We have a situation now where there's no deputy secretary of state for the five undersecretaries, not even appointed yet, much less confirmed. None of the assistant secretaries, these are the people at the core of America's diplomatic power, none appointed. And it's mystifying. Some people think that the Bannon agenda, the Trump agenda, is to hollow out the government and and to make it so much smaller that it's a reflection of what it used to be. This is a great mistake. And I think I don't blame Secretary Tillerson. This is a White House right. decision not to appoint these people. I'm going to pick on one guy, Ambassador, <laughs> and I'm going to do it because I can't pronounce his last name. Stephen Kovacic, K-O-V-A-C-S-I-C-S. He's at the consulate in Nagoya. He's the guy that looks up to Nick Burns. He's uh, out of Temple University. He has a privilege of working for the State Department. He worked in Silicon Valley. I'm just reading his bio for right. And he's been there for 14 years. I mean, he's not jetting around like Nick Burns. He's not jetting around like John. <laughs> not Perry. yet. Not this, yet. Guy, this guy is in the trenches right. of the State Department. How's he supposed to respond to a 28% haircut? Well, first, Tom, you're a great champion of American diplomacy. Thank you for that. Um, you know, the State Department is basically people. We don't have weapons systems, as I was telling Tom earlier today. We don't have aircraft carriers to put into mothballs to satisfy a budget hawk. What we have are people. Um, and we have people who are Arabists and Africanists and China specialists and Japan specialists. They spend their whole life learning these languages, learning the history and culture. They're a national treasure. And part of what keeps America strong and safe is that we have people on the front lines in our embassies and consulates, sometimes for years, defending us, explaining us, advancing American interests in a, in a thousand different ways. And that's what diplomacy is. And, and President Trump's budget is entirely military and homeland security. Now, that's vital to us 
And I actually want to see the military budget increased. But to cut the State Department, to cut the EPA, to cut social welfare programs, this budget is not going to pass the Republican Congress. Republicans will resist it. It, it, it needs to be fundamentally rethought. Ambassador Burns, let me ask you lastly here about public diplomacy, how lucky it is to be one Aaron McPike traveling uh, on behalf of the Independent <laughs> Journal Review with Secretary Tillerson, the only journalist on that uh, trip. Uh, Rex Tillerson finally taking questions uh, in Japan for the first time uh, from journalists. What would you say to him about the importance of engaging uh, with the public and with journalists, and how big a problem is this that he hasn't? You know, he doesn't need my advice, but I think what, what, what the secretary and others will learn in the Trump White House is you want your secretary of state and defense to travel for the American journalists. You want them to tell the story, not just the Chinese state news agency, which is not exactly democratic. You don't want the Chinese government-run media to define Secretary Tillerson's visit. You want free, demo, uh, small-D, democratic reporters to be able to do that. And in a democracy where the press has First Amendment rights, it's the responsibility of people in government to be transparent as much as that's possible to be accountable. This is what democracy is. And the press is not the enemy of the American people, as President Trump has been saying. Ambassador Burns, a great privilege to speak with you as always. That's Nicholas Burns of the Harvard Kennedy School. Stan Collender, at the budget guy on Twitter, a man who cautions us, Tom, that we should not call the document that the White House released yesterday and sent to Capitol Hill a, a budget. Stan, it begs the question, I got to ask, when's the last time we had what you would consider to be what constitutes a budget? Well, wow, that was a very dramatic question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, no, look, the president, President Obama, has submitted a budget each of the previous eight years. Um, the better, it's not so much that this isn't a budget; it's that um, the first, the first so-called budget coming out of the administration is only partially complete. It only deals with about one third of spending. Doesn't deal with economics. Doesn't deal with revenues. Doesn't deal with mandatory spending. Um, I mean, this was really just a, a press release coming out of the Trump campaign campaign about fulfilling its campaign promises, but it doesn't really have a fiscal policy involved. So I, I don't see how you can possibly seriously take this as a budget. Yeah, but Stan, I mean, and folks, let's let's be clear here. Professor Collender was noted by the laureate Paul Krugman today in the New York Times, who, you know, went to the source, Collender, this is not a budget, et cetera. It's a campaign um, document. I get that Paul Krugman doesn't like the budget. Paul Krugman doesn't like any Trump thing. What about the Trump supporters that are going, say what? How do they respond to this? Well, Tom, I'm not even commenting on, on the specific proposals. I like some. I dislike a lot of them. That's not the point. But, you know, the budget is a tool of fiscal policy. It should, it should be related to the economy, what you, where you think the economy is going to go. And this budget doesn't include an economic forecast. It, and has, so if you don't have an economic forecast, if you don't have a, even an assumption, okay. even a guess, so how can you come up okay. with proposals? Under and you, but you know the minutia of actually the Joint Committee and all that. I, I know the headline question is, what does Speaker Ryan do? Forget about that. What does the machinery that Stan Collender knows perfect, how does the machinery respond to this and then get to the next step? It sits back and waits. Uh, Mike, Mick, Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director yesterday, said they're going to come out with the rest of their proposal in May or June. 
And the machinery in Congress, as you put it, the budget process is going to wait until then for two reasons. One, because they want to see what the president's going to propose and make him take the political hit for anything that's pretty bad. Second, um, Congress really can't move on the next budget until it finishes this one, that is 2017, because if they move ahead with 2018, that's the budget that was submitted yesterday, the document that was submitted yesterday, they're going to kill their chances of doing ACA repeal and replace. So um, See, that's why we love a, to have you on. I mean, David, my head's spinning. It's like it's like it's my like, life is now complete. Wait, then it's like Marilyn losing. That's what it's like. Continue, there you go, David. Stan. Uh, how many pounds are going to be packed on this skinny budget by the time we get the next one? What detail are you expecting we're going to get? Are we going to get some of the say a uh, 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 farther out prospects that we didn't get in this one? Well, you're going to don't forget this was just so-called discretionary spending yep. that is appropriations, and so, um, and it was just for one year. So we're going to get five and ten-year forecasts for those for, for those programs, which is about a trillion dollars in the budget. You're going to get mandatory programs: Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. Um, you're going to actually get a deficit forecast going out ten years or beyond, um, with that will show whether or not the president is going to be able to keep his promise to eliminate the deficit, balance the budget by the end of his his, his first actually his second. Um, and you're going to get an economic forecast in revenue. So that's going to mean that the typical five books that we get from the president, the, 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 the big budget appendix, everything, the, the just the basic budget document, should be available in May or June. And until then, we really don't have enough information to make any decisions. Let me ask you about Mr. Mulvaney. Watched him yesterday fulminating from that podium in the White House <laughs> uh, press room. Uh, he's a guy who has been very hardline, and I was wondering going into this sort of how he would complement uh, the White House, the rest of the White House when it comes to budget uh, issues. How is he fitting in, and how much is his message different from that of the White House? Well, if you look at his his congressional career, um, his positions on the budget are completely different from the White House, which is why I've said to our clients here, um, he's either going to be the most influential member of the cabinet or the next one out the door. Um, he mentioned one of, the, one of the differences yesterday. The White House uh, you know, it wants to spend more on defense. But he, he, that is Mulvaney, when he was a member of Congress, said we don't want to use it as part of the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, which allows you to spend more than the cap in defense. So he seems so far to have convinced the administration they shouldn't do it that way, uh, whether or not they actually get there. But, but I mean, that, that's, a, that's a major change, that uh, he's essentially forcing reductions in, in domestic spending to pay for an increase in defense. Stan Collinger, Executive Vice President at Corvus. Always great to get his perspective, uh, Tom. Great to see him get the FaceTime with Paul Krugman, too. Stan is a, uh, an earned source of the minutia of our fiscal process. I love how he sequenced the calendar there. Yeah. They got to do this budget before they do that budget. And then I did that. I believe he say we don't really don't do the next thing till May. You're right. So it's a waiting game until then. That's the next, uh, next iteration from yeah. uh, the White House. Joining us, Stephen Ratner Willett, uh, who uh, I, I should point out manages money for uh, Michael Bloomberg, the principal owner of uh, this station. But far more importantly, Steve, your public service is czar. Did you have a budget when you were a czar? Like, did they call you up and say, you know, the Gulf Stream, Detroit, Detroit's killing us? 
<laughs> I didn't have a Gulf Stream. Um, look, the, the the great advantage, I, uh, seriously, is of of what we did was that we didn't have a budget because we were operating using TARP money, which Congress had appropriated at the depths of the crisis. Regretted immediately that it had done it because it gave the White House too much power, and so we were actually able to do everything we did without ever having to face those wonderful folks up on Capitol Hill. Have you seen a budget like this before, Mick Mulvaney, the head of the OMB, calling this a hard power? Uh, budget, one that's uh, emphasizing security and defense let, let, so let's much? Just, let's just be clear on one thing. This budget is a political statement, not, not a budget that's going to happen, because one thing that doesn't get enough attention is that you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass this. So you are never going to get eight Democrats to flip around and be for this budget. So, so there's also opposition within the Republican Party, but these guys are making a statement as to what they want. Now, the thing that you should remember is that if this budget does not pass, and it won't, uh, or any budget won't pass, then you go into a continuing resolution, which means you go back into the sequestration caps, and the deal that was made between Patty Murray and Paul, uh, Paul Ryan when he was in charge of budgets to defer some of the worst cuts take effect. And so a lot of bad stuff is going to happen on October 1st on autopilot, uh, even if this budget is not passed. So the sequestration is not going away, much as the president hoped that it would when he when he spoke before the joint session of Congress. No, no end in sight to, to those caps. Well, the president should know better that if you propose a budget that's going to cut 20, 30, 40 percent out of agencies that many of us think are important, then you obviously aren't going to have a budget deal and, you, and the sequestration isn't going to go away. What must it be like to run one of these agencies? I think of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. He seems to be on board with, with cuts of these magnitudes. But we're talking about cuts here that would radically reconfigure, again, should they be affected, and they probably will not be affected in, in full at least, uh, the institutions that these people are heading. It's interesting because, of course, some of the institutions like the EPA are headed by people who want to abolish them anyway. But I, which is I awkward, do, to say the least. Which is awkward. <laughs> but, I do, but I do think of Rex Tillerson a lot because – uh, I can't imagine that he would sit there and say to himself that I want my budget cut by 30 percent. Who wants his budget cut by 30 percent? But I think he may also say to himself, this is never going to happen, and so I can still stay on the team and kind of uh, let this sort of glide along and, and be worrying about North Korea and other things. What does this say? Okay, so let's say it's not going to pass. What does it say about strategy? What did you learn yesterday about the seriousness with which uh, this administration is treating the budget or treating uh, its promises of cutting back the size of the federal government? I think that that does make you gasp a little bit is that an administration, any administration, uh, would come forward with something this radical. I haven't gone back and studied Reagan, but I, Reagan's budgets. I cover them as a reporter, actually. But I, ha I don't believe they were even remotely of this order of magnitude of trying to reshape no. the government. You lost a good one this week at Willett Advisors. Alice Ruth will return to Dartmouth. She's out of Deerfield and Dartmouth, and she will go up there to their Dartmouth endowment and help them with quiet and conservative money. Is it about making money, or is the game of endowment investment about not losing money? Which is it? It's about making money in the long run. You know, every endowment, and, and we're a foundation in large part, has its own approach to how they tolerate volatility, mm -hmm. how they tolerate risk. Uh, we have a very, very – thanks to our, our founder, Michael Bloomberg, part owner of Bloomberg uh, Radio and, and LP, uh, we have a very long time horizon, so we're able to take risk. Right. Other institutions are more conservative because they don't want the volatility. I, I'm sure Alice is listening this morning. Help us here <laughs> with the debate she's going to be hit over the head with which is active versus passive. Harvard's had to deal with this. Every endowment has well, had to well, deal no, with this. Harvard has a somewhat different situation. Harvard's issue was that they were trying to do active management internally. Mm. And in today's world, you can't attract 
the best talent right. to come internally into a place like that. And so they're now going to an external mo mode. Okay. I think the, 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 the major endowments, whether it's Dartmouth, Harvard, what we do, we still do believe that over time active management can produce better results, and we're still committed to that strategy. Now, are we simply doing it as in a self-preservation uh, act that we want to keep our jobs, so therefore we have to believe in active mm -hmm. management? We'll find out. Do you believe uh, in the new environment, the regime shift and the Trump bump, et cetera, that we'll see revenue growth out of American companies, additional marginal revenue growth in the coming years? I, I mean, above what would otherwise happen or above compared to what? If, if we get 4% revenue growth, is the new 4%, 5% better revenue growth? Okay, I think you could get a little bit better revenue growth for a short period of time if he puts in place a stimulative tax policy that – uh, creates incentives for people to buy things and for companies to make things. In the, uh, the revenue growth of, our, of U.S. companies is going to be hurt by a strong dollar. It's going to affect exports. Right. Uh, and secondly, it's a, as you know, it's just basic economics that our long-term growth rate cannot exceed the supply of labor plus the productivity of that labor. If he restricts immigration, the supply of labor may be restricted somewhat. Uh, productivity has been very weak. I don't see anything he's proposing particularly that would help it. And so I, I am, I don't, I'm, okay. not a, I'm not a pessimist by nature, but it's very hard okay. to see a long-term growth, yeah. growth rate much above 2% at this moment. And with the news flow we've had, Healthcare sort of drifted away. I believe uh, five days ago, that was front and center, right, David? Yeah, and I think that uh, the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, probably would prefer that it still <laughs> remain yeah, really. front and center as we're dealing with with all of this stuff. Uh, Steve Renner, how optimistic are you here that we'll see, uh, maybe not this piece of legislation, Bass might, might be optimistic about that, but see some changes here, some smart changes to this legislation. I don't know. There are going to be changes. Whether yeah. they're going to be smart changes or less smart is the question because what Paul Ryan's got to navigate are some people on his right flank who want changes that I would view as not smart and then a bunch of uh, several uh, more or less moderate Republican senators on the Senate side who want changes in the other direction. And so he's really caught between a rock and a hard place. I, I've been sort of vacillating around 50-50 for this, but – I have to say that it doesn't make sense to me for the people on the right side of Paul Ryan to actually ultimately vote no to almost anything because why would you want to go back to Obamacare 1.0 mm -hmm. if you can have 2.0 or 1.8 or 1.5 or anything that in their minds is better than 1.0? But, you know, the broader point that we should keep in mind about both health care and the budget is the dramatic way in which the president is reshaping priorities and spending away from the very people who elected him. The, uh, his health care proposal would cut one, net $1.1 trillion of benefits that go to lower-income Americans, many of whom voted for him, and they would give people like me $600 million of tax cuts, which, and I didn't vote for him, and I don't need those tax cuts. And then on the spending side, the budget obviously would eviscerate a lot of programs that help people at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum. So this is really the most dramatic reshaping of government priorities uh, I've ever seen. Last question here. You look at the Affordable Care Act and you can see some deficits there. You see these insurance companies pulling out of some markets and uh, all that's associated uh, with that. Why does it seem so difficult to have uh, a, a smart, measured conversation about health care policy uh, in this country? You hear from the House Speaker that this isn't being rushed through uh, the House. Indeed, they've been thinking about it for a long time. They've run on it for several cycles uh, now. And yet... It's very hard to find outside groups that support this piece of, of legislation, the changes that are, that are proposed here. What makes healthcare in particular so difficult, so thorny a political issue? 
uh, first of all, it's a huge part of our GDP. It's around 18% or something like that. And secondly, you're dealing with moral questions. You're dealing with uh, rationing health care, how much health care are people entitled to as a matter of just being a citizen versus having any other commodity, anything else you use in your life, you're expected to pay for it. Why? Health care is just different. Uh, it's just different in that respect. And I, I thought where you were going with the question, though, so I'll answer a question you didn't ask. <laughs> Fair enough. Is, is what's also not being discussed, and politically it's impossible – but the problems of like insurers pulling out of the marketplaces, this could have been fixed. Mm. Uh, nobody expected that Obamacare would get it all right on the first get-go. And in a rational world, you could have gone back in and changed things. For example, the, the cap of three to one on the ratio between what older people pay and what younger people pay, in retrospect, was a mistake. You could fix that kind of stuff, obviously not in this political environment. Uh, Steve Ritten, thank you so much, Willard Advisors. orthopedic hand surgeon from Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, the president of the American Medical Association. That's Andrew Gurman who joins us now. I know that the AMA has come out against the American Health Care Act, the plan proposed and championed by many members of the Republican, Republican members of the House of Representatives. Dr. Gurman, give us a sense here of what you and your organization don't like about the plan. Good morning. Well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on your show. Um, we know that people who don't have health insurance live sicker and die younger. The data are incontrovertibly clear on that point. So when we see a piece of legislation that, that by everybody's estimates, will uh, take somewhere between 14 and, and 25 million people off the insurance rolls, we think that that is condemning them to living sicker and dying younger. And as physicians, we felt obligated to point that out. How much input did you... Uh, at the AMA, and how much input did doctors in particular have uh, in crafting this legislation? Did Republicans on the Hill seek out your counsel? Well, we uh, informed every member of Congress uh, on, I think, the second day of the, of the congressional session uh, what our principles were. Uh, that people who had insurance shouldn't lose it, that people who don't have insurance should get it, that there needs to be adequate funding uh, for safety net programs, CHIP uh, and Medicaid, uh, that there needs to be an unremitting commitment to quality, uh, and that insurance needs to be affordable, affordable and provide meaningful coverage. So we've, we've communicated those principles to, uh, to everyone in Congress, and we have met with leadership on both sides of the aisle. We've talked with uh, with folks in the insurance industry who say, you know, there were problems with competition in a number of market uh, places. Uh, how, how, how much of a mess is the Affordable Care Act to you? When you're looking at it, when you see problems with it, things that need to be fixed, what stands out to you as a doctor? Well, the biggest thing that needs to be fixed in the Affordable Care Act is stabilizing the individual insurance markets. There's great uncertainty, um, and uh, I think people on both sides of the aisle agree about that. The question is, do you fix what's there or do you replace um, uh, with something else? We're not philosophically opposed to replacement. We just need to know what it is before you, re you repeal what's here. If you're with us, folks, Andrew Gurman, he is the head of the American Medical Association and out of upstate Syracuse. Uh, doctor, um, I went back and forth yesterday with Peter Hotez of Baylor, and I think at upstate uh, Syracuse, uh, uh, Timothy Endy, E-N-D-Y, Timothy Endy, and their courage in really tough parts of the world on vaccines. They now have to bring that courage back to the United States, where whether it's mumps or measles, we're having this discussion about vaccines, which was carried forward 
a few days ago by our newly minted uh, Secretary of, of, of Human uh, Health and Human Services, Mr. Price, Dr. Price. Can you help us here with a vaccine debate? How does the AMA shift this debate back to science? Well, we, there is no debate. The, the science about uh, uh, vaccines is, again, incontrovertibly clear um, that we need to protect ourselves, our children, and our communities. Uh, and uh, the science speaks for itself. So there's, there's, to my mind, no controversy there. Um, people need to get vaccines. They're safe. The controversy seems to be a select group of medical types who have succumbed to almost a states' rights debate on basic science back to Louis Pasteur. How how do we address that as a nation when we see expanded illnesses and illnesses coming back from our childhoods? Well, again, I think we have to focus on the science. Science is not a states' rights issue. Science is not a Democrat, capital D, or Republican uh, issue. Science is science, and uh, that's what what allows us to take good care of people. Um, we, we try to do evidence-based medicine based on science that is rigorous, that is reproducible, and adheres to basic scientific principles that go back to Louis Pasteur, who you, you cited before. Dr. Grimman, let me go back to this uh, legislation on the Hill right now, the timetable that we have uh, before us. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan and others hoping to get this done as quickly as possible. What are your next steps? You mentioned sending a letter, sending your point of view to, to congressmen on Capitol Hill. Uh, where do you plan to go next as this debate continues in Washington? Well, after the legislation was dropped, we uh, reiterated our concerns. Um, we have uh, made our, our principles again known. We've reiterated them and, and made it clear what our, our problems are with the current legislation and why we can't support it as written. Uh, we have a patient's uh, Action Network and a uh, Physicians Grassroots Network, uh, and both of those will be activated. And I don't know what mm-hmm. else we will we will do, but we'll. The important thing is that we are we are communicating to Congress that we want to work with them. We want to be helpful partners in crafting legislation that will accomplish the the goals of meeting yeah. the principles that we've laid out. Do you feel that Washington is listening to our nurses and our doctors? I hope so. Well, I know hope and audacity <laughs> would help out here, but but do you feel, you know, within the scope of your career, back to your days at Upstate and Syracuse, do you feel like you've got a voice in Washington with the AMA? Uh, I, I absolutely and honestly do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent uh, 30 yeah. years of my medical career being active in it. I, I think that advocating for our profession uh, and for our patients is a professional responsibility. I think it is as in, mm. on a par with, with keeping current, with trying to do good medicine, because we, um, doctors, nurses, and patients, are the ones who can tell our mm. stories. Uh, and Congress needs to hear them. So that's why I do the work that I do, and it's, it's a privilege to do it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. German. Greatly appreciate it. We'd love to have you back on uh, uh, back with Bloomberg Surveillance again on the medicine of the nation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.